Welcome to Planning Law with Chickens, the planning law podcast brought to you by Town Legal, the specialist planning law firm. Today's pod is the next in our case law summary series, and this time we're covering an environmental impact assessment case, which brings us back to the much tested issue of how do you define the project for the purposes of EIA? The case in question is Ashchurch Rural Parish Council and Tewkesbury Borough Council, which very quickly became known as the Bridge to Nowhere case. And to tell us why, here is Landmark Chambers' Leon Glenister. Thank you, Mita, for having me on this podcast to discuss the case with you. This case, the Court of Appeal said, had unusual facts, but actually I think the legal principles involved are quite common and have wider significance for other cases. So let's start with then the factual background that the court said was unusual. Fundamentally, this case was about the defendant's own application to build a bridge in the middle of a field with no further permission sought to connect that bridge to any road link or to give it any use. So the plan was to construct the bridge remove all the temporary hall roads and then fence it off and that's why locally it had become known as the bridge to nowhere so how did that situation come about so i'll go into a bit more of the background to explain why that happened so in march 2019 tewkesbury had been awarded garden town status and the idea was for development of over 10,000 homes, 100 hectares of employment land and associated infrastructure. It had been awarded the bid on the basis of a document known as a master plan and that master plan was divided into phases and phase one had been set out to be in a particular location um, with over 3,000 homes to be built as part of it. In order to enable phase one to be developed or enable it to exist, there had to be a bridge over the Bristol to Birmingham railway line. And there were two main factors which meant the council wanted the bridge to come first. So the first reason was there was an inherent value in early infrastructure unlocking the land, particularly where it was to go over a railway bridge because of the regulatory requirements. But secondly, there was also over £8 million of Homes England grant funding, which had to be used by a particular date. So it's for that reason what the council did was to bring forward a bridge and the bridge to nowhere, but didn't bring forward any other part of the plan. So none of the homes and the employment land and not even the road that would then have to go over the bridge. So the council applied for this bridge and in that decision making there are two matters that uh, i'll consider a bit further here which was subject of the judgment in the court of appeal and upon which the court of appeal found unlawfulness the first was the officer report and the potential for an officer to fetter the discretion of a planning committee and the second is the way the council went about eia screening So I'll take those in turn before looking at some wider points of significance. So firstly, the officer report. The officer report presented to the planning committee advised that the bridge on its own would have an adverse impact on two nearby listed buildings. Therefore, 
according to the MPPF. Permission should only be granted if that harm was outweighed by the benefits. So what were the benefits of this bridge? The officer report explained them. The report explained that the bridge would unlock the land that was required for the phase one development and it would enable the development to proceed according to the timetable set. Now this was all obvious and relevant. The bridge was after all there to enable that future development, that phase one development. And indeed through the Homes England grant funding contract, the council had agreed to use best endeavours to build 826 homes. So there didn't seem to be any dispute that it was at least very likely 826 homes would be built. So those were the benefits, fairly obvious. But on the flip side, what about the harms? Well, in terms of the heritage assessment, which was assessing the impact on these two nearby listed buildings, it considered just the construction of the bridge. What it did, it separated the construction phase of the bridge and the operational phase and it only considered the construction phase. So that would be the temporary uh, impacts whilst the bridge was being constructed and then just the bridge in the middle of a field. But it didn't consider what the situation would be when that bridge was made operational. And that was despite there inevitably having to be a road going over the bridge. And because of the geography of the location, that road would very likely have had to go directly past the two listed heritage assets. But the heritage assessment did not take account of these harms at all because these were in the operational stage and not the construction phase. So the harms in the heritage assessment were purely on the bridge and no further development. The officer report took the same approach. It expressly said that future development was not material to the application for the bridge alone and indeed at the planning committee meeting one uh, member uh, committee member raised a raised a question about the harms from the operational phase so wait a minute this bridge is going to be connected to roads and therefore uh, there's going to be more harm than simply the bridge on its own and the officer's response to that question was that the committee could not, and those words were quite important, could not take these harms into account because that is not what the planning permission was for. The parish council, which was the appellant in this uh, case, so they were challenging the grant of Tewkesbury Council, argued that this statement by the officer, and indeed the report more generally, that the harms relating to wider development could not be taken into account was a fettering of the committee's discretion. So the committee were being told they were not entitled to take into account these wider harms. What the defendant argued was that this was simply a planning judgment by the officer, which the committee was being invited to agree with. The parish council, who was the appellant in this matter, challenging Tewkesbury's grant of permission argued this was a fettering of the planning committee's discretion. What the defendant argued was actually this was a planning judgment made by the officer which the committee was being invited to agree with, but the Court of Appeal rejected that analysis. 
the Court, Court of Appeal found the officer was telling the committee they were not legally entitled to consider the wider harms of the future development. And that was at least potentially a relevant consideration. So it agreed with the appellant's analysis. This, in effect, was fettering the committee's discretion and therefore unlawful. In addition, there was a case-specific argument made by the defendant counsel, and it said it was not taking into account the benefits of the wider development, but what it was taking into account was the benefits of the timing of that development. It's a fairly fine distinction, but the court agreed with the appellant on this matter and said that those two things were inextricably linked. You cannot consider there is a benefit in the timing of the development without deciding, at least implicitly, that the development in principle is a good thing and would be likely to happen. Therefore, the court found, the officer and the committee had acted irrationally by considering the benefits of the wider development of the further housing development phase one, but not the harms. So to draw that together, the court found the officer report was unlawful, and indeed the decision, because firstly, it took account of the benefits of the wider development, but not the harms. And secondly, it fettered the committee's discretion by telling members they could not take into account the harms of wider development when those harms were potentially material. I then turn to the second part of this case, which has some wider significance, which is the Council's analysis and assessment under the EIA regulations. So many will know that the Council, the Defendant Council, has a duty to consider the likely significant effect on the environment for particular types of development under the EIA regulations. So that's known as Schedule 2 development. So you need to look at the effects on the environment of the development. And in determining what that development is, you need to look at the project. So that's the word that's used in the case or the project. This issue will almost always arise where a planning application is made for part of a wider development. So the question is whether the project should be the planning application that's made or some wider uh, development which is foreseen following on from the initial application. The wider concern here is what's known in the case law as salami slicing, so a developer bringing forward piecemeal proposals in order to avoid environmental scrutiny. And there's a long line of case law on this which you may well be familiar with. You may know cases like Larkfleet, Burridge, Wingfield. And to give you an example of the issue, in Larkfleet, there was um, permission sought for a road which was to serve further urban development. And the question was whether both of those things had to be taken into account in looking at the effects on the environment or just the road. And in that case, the road served a standalone purpose. So for the purposes of that application, the road could be considered on its own. The road was uh, considered to be a project. Determination of what the project is is a matter for the decision maker subject to rationality. But the decision maker has to ask the right question. And this was the issue in this case. The Court of Appeal found the defendant counsel hadn't asked itself the right question as to what the project was. 
There was no consideration anywhere in the environmental assessment, even in the witness statements that were filed at court, which alluded to the fact that the right questions were being asked, i.e. was the bridge and the wider development functionally independent? Was the bridge an integral part of the later development and other related questions? So none of that analysis had gone on. Therefore, the court found, although generally what the project is, is a matter for the decision maker subject to rationality. In this case, the decision maker, the defendant counsel, hadn't asked itself the right question. One argument that was raised by the defendant was that, well, the wider development was insufficiently certain to take into account. The court rejected this argument. The court said it was open to the defendant counsel to carry out an assessment recognising that some parts of the wider development were not certain. And this is known as a Rochdale envelope, which is named after a case called R and Rochdale Council ex parte Milne. In the present case, the facts weren't helpful to the defendant's argument because the traffic assessment had considered potential traffic on a road which served 826 homes. So that argument was dismissed. So drawing that together, the court concluded the District Council did not consider whether the bridge was an integral part of the wide development, which it was duty-bound to do. The court further indicated it was hard to see how the bridge wasn't an integral part of the wide development, given the facts, but that wasn't a determination for the court and the matter would go back to the Council to decide. So let's draw all those strings together and uh, look at the wider significance of the case and some reflections. So two things uh, I think I'll, I'll raise. The first is that the case confirms an officer can fetter the discretion of a decision maker. Whether the officer does so will depend on how the officer report is read and we must remember that officers reports must be treated benevolently as is well established in a case called Mansell but broadly speaking if officers tell committee members or decision makers that they cannot take something into account they're going to be on dodgy ground. The second point of wider significance is in relation to EIA screening. Now a few points to take away here. Just because future development may have elements of uncertainty, it does not mean it cannot be considered as part of a project for the purposes of EIA screening. Equally, just because a project doesn't have planning permission, or even that planning permission has not been applied for, that also does not mean it cannot be considered as part of the project for the purposes of EIA screening. And lastly, the decision maker does need to address the relevant questions in determining what the project is. It is fundamentally a matter for the decision maker subject to rationality, but in reaching any conclusion, the decision maker must ask themselves the correct legal questions. Thank you, Mita, very much for having me on this podcast and for your time.